This is The Fed Report, an op-ed-style podcast featuring Canadian and international news stories. Join me, Tommy Caldwell, each week to learn what is happening in and around the country so that we can collectively hold the federal government and legacy media to account. Learn more by visiting our website, www.fedreport.ca. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 19th edition of the Fed Report. Today is Friday, March 3rd, 2023, and we have five stories that we are going to cover this week, starting with Trudeau's Chinese election interference update the hottest topic in Canadian politics right now. Then we're going to talk about the Wall Street Journal article titled, Three Years Late, The Lancet Recognizes Natural Immunity. Then we're going to talk about the Bloomberg report that discusses how skyrocketing rents in Canada are due to current immigration policies. Then how taxpayers are going to have to cover the expensive cost of gender-affirming care in the federal government. And then lastly, how the Ford Motor Company is moving to automatically repossess your vehicles. Okay, getting to the big story right now. Trudeau's lack of transparency related to the Chinese election interference uh, accusations for both the 2019 and the 2021 elections. So this started in November 2022, the original claims about some connection between the CCP and trying to support the Liberals and suppress the Conservative Party when it came to those two elections in 2019 and 2021. And when the accusation started to emerge, Justin Trudeau originally claimed that he was not briefed on any potential election interference related to the CCP. Then he eventually recognized that there was some new information that was coming up that he was paying attention to, but claimed that uh, in the reports that he'd seen, any sort of interference did not affect the election outcome. And he made that claim without publicly releasing the documentation, which would confirm his claim that what from what he had seen or from what his cabinet had seen and, and briefed him on, any sort of potential interference didn't affect election outcomes anyway. So let's just continue to sweep this thing under the rug. And then he started to, to move into some more admissions, but then saying things like there are many inaccuracies in the leaked documents from Canada's National Intelligence Agency, the CSIS, which is where most of the information that you've seen the past couple of weeks have come from. Uh, leaks from whistleblowers in the CSIS agency in Canada. Now... National security advisors claims, or I should say a national security advisor, claims that Trudeau was briefed multiple times since 2019. So Jody Thomas was testifying before a group of MPs that began hearings last November, like I mentioned, uh, in response to China's alleged campaign of interference that was targeting Canadian elections and politicians. And while facing some of the questions from parliamentarians, she confirmed that since January 2022, Trudeau and some of his cabinet have received a number of briefs and memos on these Chinese election interfered schemes in 2019 and 2021. So there's a lot that's in question here. 
And from what I've seen, paying very close attention to Canadian politics over the past few years, Justin Trudeau is always caught up in a lot of controversy that he appears to be able to weasel himself out of very easily. And I don't know that this is going to be any different. Um, in the past few days, it was also uh, it had also surfaced that the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation received two hundred thousand dollars in twenty sixteen from an individual connected with the Chinese government, and they they put out the 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 Trudeau Foundation put out their own release that says they've now learned seven years later through the media about this potential connection between the the donation, the $200,000 donation and the Chinese government, and, and they're going to return the donation. But most people probably don't recall that also in 2016, former conservative member of parliament Chuck Strahl resigned as the director of the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation in the wake of revelations that one uh, a $1 million donation to the organization and the University of Montreal was made by uh, senior members of Chinese state-run organizations whose purpose was to project Beijing's influence abroad. And they put forth a $1 million donation to the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation in 2016 as well that forced this former MP to step back as director of the foundation. So it's not like all this, all these accusations and exchanges between potential members of the CCP and the Trudeau liberal government. This is not new stuff. Now, in the wake of this, <laughs> this, uh, what would you call it? Uh, this avalanche of information going into our media outlets, well, what is Trudeau's number one concern? His concern is finding the whistleblowers in the CSIS who are responsible for leaking this information. And the head of the CSIS, David Vigneault, said, there is an investigation underway by the CSIS and our partners regarding the sources of the information and the leaks. There are ways for people to express their dissatisfaction. And what he's saying there is, hey, there's a lot of ways that you can internally surface these conversations if, if you have concerns about, about what you've found through, through the information that you've been able to dig up. Going public with it is not the right move. Now, Information leaks are certainly a problem that government institutions need to take seriously for the sake of national security. But in this case, it's a very bad look that your witch hunt becomes prioritized rather than the investigation into the actions or just at, at best the passive acceptance by the prime minister's office in the face of this kind of information because foreign influence on elections, not to mention with a with a government that you've also appeared to accept money from in the past knowingly in significant sums with people who are connected to the CCP, that seems like a very big issue. Something that you should maybe be taking head on right now rather than focusing on how that information got into the public eye. But in typical narcissistic Justin Trudeau fashion, he cannot acknowledge the error that that he is part of. 
he needs to find the person responsible because he is the one who is infallible. And this is all very typical of Trudeau. The question is, how much how much are Canadians going to take? How much are citizens going to take? Every month, there is a new scandal that comes out attached to Justin Trudeau. And a, a significant portion of these scandals are significant. They're not little things. They're not tiny accusations, and this one in particular. But with that said, Justin Trudeau has a way of finding, uh, has a way of finding a way out of these matters. And if I was a betting man, I would say this isn't going to be any different. And aside from perhaps changing the perspective of voters, if voters can even recall stories like this when it comes election time, aside from that potential consequence, I don't think there's a true legitimate price that will be paid for Trudeau or the liberals at large for this scandal. Okay, moving on. Three years late, The Lancet recognizes natural immunity. And this is an article that came out in the Wall Street Journal. And the subtitle is, The Public Health Clarity Rediscovers a principle of immunology it derided throughout the pandemic. And I love that subtitle because that's exactly what happened. Natural immunity is a, is a phenomenon that has been understood in the scientific literature and the, and the science world for a very long time. Then it was forgotten for a convenient period of time uh, when it was politically inconvenient to recognize natural immunity. And now that uh, now that we're, we're, we're three years into this issue, now we can go back and recognize that this exists again. Now, they put this on the Lancet and they make it out like, oh, the, the Lancet now rediscovers the principle of immunology. But as anyone who's been paying attention to this situation knows, it's not this is not the responsibility of the journal so much as it is the responsibility of governmental public health institutions because if even a year and a half ago even a year ago you started talking about natural immunity as an effective means of uh of protecting yourself from further uh from ver- further viral exposure you would be censored you would be kicked out of your position. You would be attacked. And this is all government-led rhetoric that allowed this situation to happen. So while I think it's unfair to place this on a medical journal, I'm just glad people are starting to talk about it right now. So this was the largest review, this review by The Lancet, was the largest review of available data on this subject. And I'm going to quote from the article here. People who've been infected with COVID reduce their chances of hospitalization and death by 88% over 10 months compared to somebody who hasn't been been infected. The natural immunity provided by infection was at least as high, if not higher, than the immunity provided by two doses of Moderna or Pfizer mRNA vaccines against the ancestral, alpha, delta, and Omicron variants according to the study. And according to some of the studies in this analysis, uh, natural immunity was stronger than two doses plus a booster as well. Now, the vast majority of study data used in this meta-analysis 
has been available for the better part of two years. Again, this is not new information. It's just being repackaged now and dripped out into the public eye. Both the the strength of natural immunity compared to vaccination, as well as the limitations of the vaccine. This has all been understood in various medical journals, in mounds of literature over the past two years. So to start dripping this stuff right now is pure damage control. You can see it now with the lab leak theory as well, where you were a racist or a quack if if you thought or if you spoke about the possibility of this virus leaking from a lab. Now, the lab leak theory is the leading hypothesis for COVID-19 origins in mainstream media and in governmental public health institutions now. And again, the information that is now leading these public institutions to claim that lab the lab leak theory is now the, the most possible hypothesis for how the pandemic began, the information that's leading to this conclusion is not new. The vast majority of the lab leak information was available almost immediately after the investigation began, but it was suppressed by government institutions who had their hands in the wrong pies as far as being involved in the Chinese laboratories, in funding research in these Chinese laboratories, where the potential lab leak, the where the finger was being pointed at the potential lab leak. So that information was suppressed, but now that enough time has passed, they're trying to drip in these admissions, admissions and pretend like, this, these are things that could only have been learned now. These are things that only could have been learned in the past few weeks, which is absolutely insane. There should be a price to be paid here. And again, I doubt that will be the case for a variety of reasons, but there is a price that should be paid here. How many people got vaccinated by force or co- coercion rather than by health choice? When natural, uh, when natural immunity was a perfectly acceptable alternative to vaccination. How many kids or teens got vaccinated so they could play sports or partake in recreational activities when at the time 70% of those kids were probably already naturally infected with the virus and adequately, adequately protected anyways. These are not small things. How many people lost their jobs or livelihood for refusing a medical intervention where you can, you can question the ethics uh, of this strategy as well, but even when you could have just taken a test to show that you had been previously infected with some strain of COVID-19, And you would know that you were as protected, if not more protected, than the vaccination. This was not made an option. This would not even be considered an option. And if anybody, even Ivy League educated virologists, infectious disease specialists, epidemiologists, anyone who questioned the mainstream narrative on these issues was silenced was silenced, was ridiculed, was made an example of. And now government institutions, mainstream media, and public health outlets 
will slowly drip these long known admissions into the public eye. And now it's 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 long after the average person feels like life has normalized and most people in the public are going to be apathetic to the issues, errors and and straight up lies that they've been told over the past 2 years. The public should be enraged about this issue, but in my point of view, in my view, they won't be because the admissions of guilt are calculated. They're made while taking strong social science into account. And the government knows how to admit wrongdoing without any accountability, without any repercussions, and without any public consequence. And I really wish that wasn't the case, but if you're reading if you're reading the emergence of this information in the admissions and thinking that anything is going to change, I don't think you've been paying attention to how human beings operate because these these sorts of problems have already been long forgotten by the vast majority of the public. They just want to move on with their lives. They feel like life is somewhat normal again, and they don't they don't want to go back in time and start reconsidering these issues that have been at best stressful and at worst traumatizing for some people over the past few years. So if you think uh, if you think it's it's going to be time to pay the piper on these issues. Um, I think you're going to be waiting a long time to see any sort of result from that. But again, when the when the election comes, you can always you can always speak up with your vote. But we'll we'll see if people's memories are are quite short when it comes to these issues. Okay, moving into the next story. According according to a Bloomberg report, rents are skyrocketing in Canada due to our immigration policies. So to give you some statistics here, these are rent increases for two-bedroom apartments year over year from October 2021 to October 2022. So in 2021 in Halifax, there was a 4.8% increase. That has almost doubled to 9.3% in 2022. In Toronto in 2021, there was a 1.3% increase in rent prices. Now in 2022, that's jumped up to 6.5%. There were no rent increases in Calgary in 2021. Now it's up to 6%. In Vancouver, they've gone from 2.4 to 5.7. In Montreal, they've gone from 4% to 5.4%. In Ottawa, they jumped from 1.3% to 4.8%. Uh, and in Winnipeg, they actually went down. And this is the only place listed in the data where it went from 2.8% uh, to 1.5% increase in 2022. Now, Bloomberg points to uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's government plans to welcome 465,000 new permanent residents this year and increase that annual target to half a million by 2025. Now, I don't think you can point the finger direct or only at immigration uh, and uh, elevated rates of immigration. That is certainly going to be part of the problem because as a greater number of people enter the country, there's going to be more demand and less supply. And when you have greater demand than supply, you're going to have higher costs. So rents are going to be higher. But there's also the issue of mortgage rate increases. Look at how high mortgage rates have risen in Canada in the last two years. Landlords aren't going to eat that cost. Most landlords don't own their house outright. Most landlords are paying a mortgage on that property that they're renting out. So if a landlord's uh, if a landlord's 
mortgage payments increase 600 to to $1,000 a month, they're not going to eat that cost, especially when the heightened demand is such that they know they are going to get more money for that property if they ask for it. When I read this stuff, I, immigration is not good or bad. There are benefits of immigration. There are downsides to immigration. It's a matter of properly calculating those benefits and downsides with the current landscape inside of a nation. So my questions are, well, when we have 500,000 new new citizens entering the country each, each year, how many of those how many of those new citizens are skilled versus unskilled? Meaning how many of those new citizens can be put directly into jobs that that we need to fill within the country versus immigrants who are going to come and it's going to take them a long time to get to a place where they can have uh, where they can have some sort of permanent uh, permanent career or permanent position uh, where they are 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 generating for the country rather than taking from the country because, we need to know how much of this is going to be taxpayer supported, right? So let's say 500,000 immigrants enter the country in any given year. You need to know how many of those new citizens and for how long are going to have to have their living subsidized by Canadian taxpayers rather than being able to go to work right away and contributing to to society in a financial way rather than taking finances from existing taxpayers. Because if you haven't done that calculation properly, it's going to make all the difference with with what happens here. Uh, And again, this isn't my opinion. This is Bloomberg's report talking about uh, the skyrocketing rent being a result of the immigration policies. But it does make sense. But it's not just the immigration policies alone. It's the immigration policies plus the insane increase in mortgage costs and that higher demand that comes with an influx of citizens along with the higher cost of being a landlord and a landlord knowing that they can make up that cost by jacking up the rents. They can jack up the rents and there's enough people that somebody's going to end up renting that space from them. I think the vacancy, uh, I think the residential vacancy rate is around 2% which is the lowest it's been in decades. So even though rents are going up, people are ending up in houses. It's not like landlords, residential landlords are sitting around with their uh, arms crossed in a bunch of empty spaces. Landlords are having their spaces filled and people are paying to live there. And basic supply and demand is going to dictate that that's going to drive the costs up with a few other variety of factors. I was also reading today, uh, around the world about the state of commercial real estate, which is in a completely different space where some places are at a 50% vacancy for their commercial rental units. And I, I haven't, uh, I'm certainly not an expert in that area by any means. And, uh, and there's more information that I, that I need to look into. There are more digging I need to do before I, I say too much more about that. But it looks like uh, the commercial side of real estate in the next few years is going to be in for a very, very rough ride. Okay, moving into the next story. Taxpayers, Canadian taxpayers to cover $75,000 in cost for federal workers' gender-affirming care. 
And this was from an official government document that is talking about uh, allocating $75,000 per lifetime for gender-affirming care for federal employees. Now, I'm just reporting on this for the sake of reporting on it. I don't... I don't really know that I have an opinion on this yet because the question is, is gender affirming care health care? And if you believe that gender affirming care is health care, then the next question you can ask is, is $75,000 per person paid via the taxpayer reasonable? Because there are lots of conditions that somebody can eat and drink and sloth their way into that's probably going to cost taxpayers way more than $75,000 per year to take uh, to take care of a person. Like if you think about somebody who for lifestyle reasons has been a type 2 diabetic for 40 years, I can only imagine how much it costs for that person's annual medical bills year after year after year after year not to mention all the other conditions, lifestyle-driven disease conditions that people can find themselves in. I'm sure the cost of that is astronomical. So if you believe that gender-affirming care is health care, is $75,000 per lifetime, is that even comparatively expensive? And these are questions you need to ask before you form an opinion on this because from what I've seen, people, people who have read this story and clearly don't believe that gender-affirming care is health care. They think $75,000 for gender-affirming care is absolutely outrageous. And it's, we shouldn't be paying for this. Uh, but $75,000 per lifetime is not a lot of money if you think about what it costs per lifetime to subsidize care for for any other person's disease. So I guess the question really comes down to, do you believe that gender-affirming care is health care? If you do believe that gender-affirming care is health care, then $75,000 is not an unreasonable amount to allocate to that demographic of people. But of course, if you think gender-affirming care is not health care, and this is more of a, a personal decision like an elective surgery, like paying for someone's plastic surgery that they don't require to live, but they would prefer to have and they would like to have, then you're going to have a different point of view. But this is something that has come up quite a bit and was a, uh, a hot topic in the country, so I thought it's something that, that I should at least cover. Okay, last story here that I wanted to add in. Ford Motor Company, so uh, I believe this story is out of the U.S., but the Ford Motor Company, of course, is synonymous with, with Canada here. Ford wants automatic vehicle repossession. So the Ford Motor Company applied for a patent and actually, I'll just talk you through the details here from the actual article. The application describes the installation of a repossession system computer, which would be capable of disabling a functionality of one or more components of the vehicle, including the air conditioning and radio, incessant and unpleasant sound may be turned on every time the owner is present in the vehicle, or even replacing the vehicle in a lockout condition. 
meaning it is unable to be driven unless in the case of an emergency situation like needing to go to the hospital. The repossession system computer could be configured to communicate via a network of uh, a network with various entities, such as, for example, a computer of the repossession agency, a computer of a police authority, a computer of a medical facility, a computer of a lending institution, and or a personal communication device of the owner, the application states. So basically, Ford is looking at implementing technology into future models where if you don't pay your bills, it can turn the car off or make it very unpleasant for you to drive it, and in some cases, lock the door and drive the car back to the dealership for repossession. Now, when I read this, it it makes me question what this means for consumer rights. Because you can be in a debate with a company that you have a financial arrangement with where you don't believe they have lived up to their end of the deal that you've signed as far as the quality of the vehicle that you've been provided. So let's say uh, you buy a vehicle and you have nothing but problems with it and some of those issues are covered under the warranty and some of those issues are not covered under the warranty but are issues that nonetheless should not be happening with your car within the time frame that they're happening. So now you're in a dispute with the company and you're refusing to pay for these issues to be fixed, right? You go, you get them fixed at the dealership, you get a bill for $2,000, you say, hey, I'm not paying for this. My vehicle is only 10 months old. Why should I be paying for any issues that come up with the vehicle right now? And they say, well, too bad. This is the warranty on the vehicle. If you're not going to pay it, we're going to press this button. It's going to lock your car doors. We're going to take the car back and there's nothing you can do about it. It, 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 brings, into, it brings into question how much gamesmanship needs to be allowed between consumers and institutions, both private institutions as well as government institutions. I think about the personal issue that I take with automatic speeding cameras, where there's automatic speeding cameras on traffic lights, and if the speed limit is 50 kilometers per hour and you're going 62 kilometers an hour, it just snaps a picture and then you get a fine for $120 in the mail. For me, in my opinion, I don't like that. I feel like there has to be a person, there has to be an officer who's who's part of that game where where the speeder has a choice. Now people will of course people are going to push back on that and say that is incredibly inefficient and unnecessary and if you're speeding you're speeding and if you're caught speeding even if you're caught speeding by a robot, you should have to pay the price. But I I am worried about technology automating the necessity of human interaction out of all these different relationships between people, between people in private business, between people and the government, between people and other service providers, whether that's uh, through healthcare or otherwise, there is going to be there's there is a cost that is going to be paid and there are trades that are going to have to be made when you move towards technology for the sake of efficiency, whether that's uh, labor and time efficiency or cost efficiency, as we start to automate the ability for human beings to interact with other human beings in order to resolve problems, I'm not sure that problems are going to be resolved in the best way for human beings. And there's a trade-off there 
And to me, this issue with Ford is just one of those trade-offs. If, if, if without any necessary customer service considerations or without any two-way communication or without the consumer having an opportunity to hold the company hostage in some way in order to have some leverage over these potential situations, that's a big problem for the person. That's a big problem for the people. So while the argument can be made that this can make things more cost effective, more efficient, more automatic, uh, what, whatever the proposed benefits are going to be, what we are certainly going to lose is the necessary interaction between people that gives the consumer, the citizen, the person leverage over that automated institution. And this is something that I think people need to be concerned about. Okay, so those are the stories for this week. Again, there's there's a hundred things we could go over every single week. I just try and stick to the things that number one are of greatest interest to me, and number two that I believe are going to be to the greatest interest of the greatest interest in, in the in the broadest amount of potential listeners. So as always, please. If you enjoy these reports, now that it's in podcast form as well, please subscribe. Please rate the podcast. And if you truly enjoy it, share it with other people. And as always, speak up, use your voice, stay informed, and we'll see you at the next report. Thank you for listening. Please rate and subscribe to the podcast and be sure to check out our YouTube channel and Twitter account, both titled The Fed Report.